0: Welcome to Take Two. I'm your host, Kamel Jones, and I'm so excited to finally bring this to you. I've been wanting to start a podcast for so long now, like four years. And when COVID started, I was like, the world is ending. Let me get to doing stuff that I want to do. So with that, here's the beginning of all the amazing content I hope to bring you. Enjoy. My first guest is an Academy Award winning producer, activist, and founder of The Pad Project. Please welcome Claire Siney.
1: Hello. I'm so excited to be your first guest.
0: I'm happy to have you as my first guest. It was actually almost exactly a year ago that we met. Because I think it was I your know. 21st birthday, right?
1: Yeah, it was my 21st birthday. I feel like that was very serendipitous. It was so random and it was like a this beautiful moment. And now we are friends a year later.
0: Yeah, I... I was trying to think back about like, to how, like, how did we even start talking? I mean, obviously I was, I I was a host at the restaurant I work at. We, Claire and I met at the restaurant I work at. Um, I don't know how we sort of started talking.
1: I think I, yeah, I think you maybe like you probably came over and like brought us something or, or maybe like took us to the table or something like totally random like that. And you recognize me, I guess. I think you'd said from a Philadelphia Inquirer article that maybe had been written. I think that's what you'd said. Could be wrong. Um, And I was, I've never really been like recognized as, you know, (laughs) like somebody like, I I hate to use the word famous, but like, Oh, somebody who, you know, I saw you on TV or like, I read something about you. I know who you are. Like, that's never really happened to me before. So I like almost starstruck to meet you. I was like, she knows who I am. Um, (laughs) But it was so cool that you were like actually interested in, in what I'd been doing and like some of the work with the pad project. Cause um, I don't know, like it's always so exciting to know that people actually like care about about what I care about and like the things that I'm up to.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I like, I knew from the first time that we met that I wanted to have you on my podcast. And I've been thinking of like doing a podcast for a very long time. Um, and so even though it was a year ago, I like, I'm finally getting the ball rolling, but <laughs> I like knew I wanted to have, to, to have you on as, as a guest.
1: Um, I'm, I'm so excited. And I mean, obviously honored to, to be on your podcast. And I also feel like you're such a social, like very extroverted person. So you're like the perfect person to be hosting a podcast. You're very chatty. You. It's like fun to just be on and like chatting with you, you know,
0: my, my, my fifth grade teacher commented on my post. I posted like the, the picture of my podcast cover and telling everyone to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And she commented you were always so loquacious. And I was like, you know it. And at the moment I didn't know exactly what loquacious meant, of course. And so I Google it and it's very talkative and I'm pretty sure she wrote that on my report card.
1: (laughs) I never even knew that that was a word either. So I honestly feel like I could also be described in that way too. (laughs) Loquacious.
0: Um, So before we get into like the pad project and the things that you're working on, Uh, Just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, How'd you get to Philly and how'd you get started?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm Claire. I am 21 going on 22 years old. Um, This Friday? Yes, on Friday. Um, So I feel like when everyone's listening to this will be after the fact, but belated birthday, I guess. Um, I am a senior at the University of Pennsylvania. So that's what brought me here to Philly. Um, I had only really ever been to Philly to both, I guess, tour Penn and, and come to Penn. And then also actually the first time I toured Penn randomly coincided with the Democratic National Convention in 2016, which is like a little fun fact. Um, but so that's that's kind of what brought me here. I'm uh, double majoring in philosophy, politics, economics and gender studies. So that's definitely a mouthful. And. Um, but I feel like it very much coincides with and like speaks to a lot of the work that I do outside of school as well. Um, But so I'm, I'm supposed to graduate in the spring, currently doing everything online, currently doing everything virtual. um, But that's a little bit about my background. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. Um, I'll say that. Yes. I'm a a Philly transplant, you could say.
0: (laughs) So, Tell us a little bit about the Pad Project and how you got involved with that.
1: Yeah, so um, the Pad Project is a nonprofit that I founded when I was back in high school and it was never meant to be a big organization um, at all. It was kind of you know, a bunch of my, my peers in high school and my uh, 10th grade English teacher coming together um, as part of this, you know, smaller chapter called Girls Are International where we talked about gender issues, you know, gender equality, access to education, human rights. Um, And we were fortunate enough to go to the Commission on the Status of Women at the United Nations, like facilitated by this little program we were doing. And it was there that we learned about this issue of girls uh, primarily in developing countries dropping out of school when they get their periods. And you know, it's this idea that reaching puberty age, you know, coincides with um, kind of the the devaluation of women's education, girls' education, um, the idea that you're of childbearing age and therefore, you know, marriage age. So it's a lot of these um, these kinds of concepts inter intertwining and and speaking to this larger issue of um, disempowerment. Um, and kind of lack of access to like opportunities for girls. So we came back from the UN and we were like, this is an issue that we're really passionate about. Um, we want to try and kind of address it however we can. We learned about these pad manufacturing machines that literally manufacture sanitary pads for very, very low cost that can be operated um, in kind of a very easy way, but can be you know, used to, to earn wages. So we combined a bunch of these concepts and decided that we would raise money for a pad machine um, in a partner village uh, called Kathikara in India. And we were fortunately connected to them like through Action India, this this awesome nonprofit um, in India. And so this, this moment of a lot of, of different players coming in to connect us with this 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 community and install a, a pad machine that the women in, in the village could work on. And so, the Pad Project grew and we're now a 501c3 nonprofit. Nice. And um, it was kind of just this, this very beautiful snowball effect in a way. Because I, I never had like, intended to, to start a nonprofit when I was 14. <laughs> but but here, here we are. So. Here we are. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I watched the film that came, sort of came out of this Pad Project, which is Period in this sentence, which is on Netflix – um, if you haven't watched it, you should totally go watch it. And what I realized was that I didn't know much about women's periods. And I realized that the education in America does not really provide that education on the period, uh, like mm-hmm. periods for women. Um, and I realized it's it's a global issue.
1: Abs- um, absolutely. You know, and so... It's- yeah, no, I could, I could not agree more. And you're not the first person to to say that. That's a very common reaction to the hearing about periods in this life for the first time.
0: Yeah, and it, it's like you're actually talking about periods and how it, it is very, you know, how it affects a, a girl's life. There was a question in the movie or the documentary where they asked what is has a period. And they asked one of the guys, the, a few of the guys in India. And he said... An illness most girls have it and so for me I was like I mean obviously like I, I, I wouldn't call it an illness um,
1: right but but some not some people you know if they don't have prior knowledge about what a period is if they just see blood coming out of you for some reason you know you you can't help but think that there's something wrong with you and if you're not taught properly about what does happen to your body, Um, how are you supposed to know that that's totally normal or like what to look for if that isn't normal? And especially, you know, for, for boys and and men in communities where they aren't informed about periods, you know, even like even less so than, than, than women and girls. And so it's no, it's, it's periods are so, so deeply stigmatized in so many communities cultural cultures all over the world i mean even here in the united states and that's kind of why we wanted to make period end of sentence out of the pad project you know to like make a documentary that that not only educates people about the work that we're doing but but really just like forces this very taboo subject Mm -hmm. to to the big screen um and and kind of you, you you can't look away from it, right? Like it, it forces it into a normal topic of conversation, and I think that that's like one of the biggest ways to destigmatize periods and like women's health in general and reproductive health is by just like starting to talk about it. So that's kind of like why we even wanted to to make Period End of Sentence the documentary.
0: Yeah, I mean, so when I when I was watching the film, I I was just like floored by how much I didn't know. Um, and I think I think of myself as someone who is educated, who is in college, and I can only think about, like, a 30-minute probably health class that was dedicated to talking about the women's reproductive system, about yeah. periods, about the menstruation cycle, about 30 minutes. And that's not enough right. time to, like, get people to know what it is. And there's, out of that, there's, there become so many misconceptions about, a women's health, about a women's reproductive system, about the menstruation cycle. Um, and totally. I, I, and I
1: was fortunate enough to have, um, to grow up in a community where I had pretty comprehensive like sex education um, in my school, but I mean, that is really, the, the, that is not the norm at all. It's more common to have an experience kind of like you were saying where, where you aren't educated about, about like reproductive health in, in an open way. Um, But even at the same time, I remember when I was in sixth grade and I was, you know, there was one day where our teachers came in and they, they put the boys in, in one classroom and the girls in another. And we were, I'm assuming taught pretty different things or certain things were focused on. And I get that they wanted to, you know, make, make everyone comfortable. But at the same time, I think that girls were probably told more about periods than boys were. And, and it, they were more normalized for, for girls. And so it made it so that the boys in, in, in my school really didn't know a lot about, about periods and, and more didn't feel comfortable talking about them.
0: Yeah, and I still don't know as much as I think I should, um, but I've, I've taken the steps to like start to learn about it um, because I think it's super important. We all know a woman we all know a woman that has a period and we know that they go Um, through
1: Your cousin, your friend, your teacher. I mean, in some cultures, like, you know, women are, are perceived as dirty or impure when they're on their periods. And they're not allowed to enter temples. They're not allowed to touch cooking dishes and cookware. Sometimes they're even like sequestered to, you know, huts. Outside of their homes, I mean, there are a lot of practices, and even here, I mean, in the United States, we are, you know, taught to to hide your, you know, a tampon in our back Mm -hmm. pocket, nobody sees, and and you know, to use code words to to talk about periods, and and I mean, they're 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 so deeply stigmatized here too, and here in the United States, in communities. You know, even here in, in Philadelphia, um, where people don't have access to the like menstrual hygiene products that they need, you know, we work uh, at the Pad Project, we work with an organization called No More Secrets. Mm-hmm. And um, it's run by this woman, Lynette, and she's fantastic. And she works in, in a lot of, you know, kind of underserved communities in Philadelphia, where women and girls are reaching out to her and saying, I don't, I don't have anything to handle my period. Um, I need help. And she'll, she'll donate tons and tons of products to them. Um, Really just goes to show like, this isn't just an issue in developing countries, not having access to products and not having education about periods. Um, But it's, it's an issue like in our own communities too.
0: Yeah. I mean, when I watched it and I, I, I thought about that as well. A lot of it is about access to menstruation products. And I remember back in high school, there was a club where, like, girls would collect donations um, for specifically, like, menstruation products and go give mm-hmm. them to women. But, like, I didn't know much about, you know, people not having access to, to something that I saw all the time. Yeah, and- it was an
1: issue that I didn't know much about because I was fortunate enough, I had the privilege to always have the access to the products that I needed. So when I learned that people didn't, I was really taken aback and that just like, you know, is a testament to my own privilege and and the privileges of so many of us who do have access to the products that we need.
0: Yeah, and it also made me think about in schools, there's so much more access to a condom than there is to women's menstruation products.
1: Totally, I think about this all the time. When I first came to college, Um, my like, you know, RA in my freshman dorm kept like a bowl of condoms outside of his door, which I mean, which is great to like normalize Mm -hmm. safe sex and ensure that everyone has the access to those products. But why weren't there bowls of sanitary products in the bathrooms in my hall? Right. It's, it's interesting how, how, you know, period products can just be, be ignored in terms of um, kind of, you know, things that, that we need access to in like a safe and healthy and easy and accessible way because they're, they're not cheap. And so to have to, to pay for period products every month, mm-hmm. um, it can really add up. And if you can't, you know, if you can, you can barely afford food or, or shelter, like you are not going to be prioritizing sanitary products over something like a hot meal.
0: Yeah. So uh, what was your, um, when you were filming this, um, what was your favorite part about filming this uh, project?
1: So what was amazing about Period End of Sentence was, like I said, it It kind of started as something very small. The documentary is meant to be like a little student made film. and And I think so many people were compelled by, what we wanted to do that they like jumped onto the project and wanted to help us in any way that they could and that's really how it grew to the magnitude that it that it did you know we we had so many incredible people want to to give us their resources and and help and i think that one of the most amazing parts of it was you know when we first sent rika our director she i think she was like in her early 20s just graduated from usc film school and she went to India with, um, you know, to meet with with some of the women in Kathy Kara. And when she came back, she showed us um, kind of the first just bit of like unedited, untranslated footage. And we're just sitting, you know, in the floor on the on the floor in my English classroom in high school, watching, you know, these these women that we had known or known of for so long, um, like kind of seeing it in action was like a really beautiful moment because we were sort of being told on the side what they were saying generally, like general translations. And just to know that like this wasn't something that we'd made up. It was like a very serious partnership. It was something that that the women in Kathy Kara like cared about and were passionate about in the same way that we were felt really impactful. And then of course, you know, seeing the film, like, win an Oscar is, is you know, an incredible moment. Like, that's in its own right is just, like, phenomenal. And seeing, like, the ramifications, the positive, you know, outcomes of the documentary and the Oscar win and the film being on Netflix, it's just, like, totally expanded our scope and made it so that we can touch so many more communities. Mm-hmm. And, and we have so many more resource, resources and, and relationships and so many more eyes on our film. I mean, the film has been been viewed millions of times. Yeah. In, I mean, in, in countries all over the world, which is just crazy to even fathom. But think about how many more people are starting to talk about mm-hmm. periods now as a result of that.
0: How did you find out that your film was nominated for an Oscar?
1: It was crazy. I remember that I... I had woken up the morning of nominations, and you know we'd, we'd submitted the film to a couple film festivals, and it really caught on, and we qualified, you know, for the short list of the Oscars, and it was kind of again this—it kept on being this snowball effect. I, I keep saying it, but you know, so we wake up on the morning of Oscar nominations, and everyone on the team based in Los Angeles was in a room together. And the rest of us, I was, you know, in Philadelphia at my house. Um, we were all Facetiming in, and we watched live, like the the mm-hmm. nomination announcements. And period in a sentence, I guess, just because alphabetically it was last. Um, and so I think they'd named like every single other nominee, and they got to the last slot. And so that's when I was like, oh, okay, we're we're not gonna get it, you know. There's one mm-hmm. slot left. Like, that's gonna be different, a different documentary. And then they said period in a sentence and we all started like screaming and crying and just like freaking out. Cause it was very, very unexpected. Like you wouldn't uh-huh. have expected this tiny student made film at the time, you know, we, we had not been, you know, distributed via Netflix. Like uh-huh. we had no really like nothing glamorous to push us forward.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, we just had, you know, some relationships with, with people who knew what they were doing and like gave us great advice and, and it brought us, to this point. And so it was like this crazy moment of of disbelief.
0: Wow. Did you cry?
1: Yeah. I (laughs) cried. I, I I cried like in the moment. And then there were a couple like delayed moments of crying. Like my friends cried when we went up on stage. I it took me like a couple days for it to hit. Every so often I'll like see footage from the Oscar win or I'll You know, we just made like a sizzle reel, Mm -hmm. kind of recounting the last like several years of our work, and like that made me cry. Like it just—it's a lot of these moments of reflecting on how long we've been working on this and how much of an impact we've made that gets me emotional. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, so what what was the Oscars like? What was like the journey to the Oscars? What was that like?
1: Um. Well, we were fortunate. Enough that you know our our like our you know partners from, from Kathy Kara came to nice. um, came to the Oscars. Like they at that point, Netflix had purchased the film, and so Netflix paid for them to come um, to come out to Los Angeles. And so they were like there at the Oscars with us, walking down the red carpet. You know, like that was wow. a really amazing experience. Um, and it was, I, I flew to LA from Philly that night. Like, you know, um, what was it? I flew, I flew on, I think Friday night, like got there Saturday. The Oscars were Sunday, Monday, mid morning. I had a flight back to Philly cause I had two midterms that week when I got back. So it was like very hectic um and honestly it's like kind of surreal I'm happy I took pictures because there are parts of it that just like I don't remember at all because it all happened so fast
0: did you meet any cool people any yeah. actors or actresses
1: um I met I met Emma Stone in the bathroom Ooh, told her, which was very cool and I told her you know she was like I was like oh my god I'm such a fan whatever and she was like oh like what are you you know here for and I told her um, I was a producer on period end of sentence and she was like, Oh, I watched that documentary. I loved it. And I was like, <laughs> Oh my God, you like, my documentary. um, I'm just like being in the presence of all of these really powerful, famous people who like were really excited to see us win was really exciting. Cause it's a lot of people that like I admire. And so seeing that like they admired us was a very cool yeah. new experience for sure.
0: That's really cool. I've been to the Grammys once.
1: Ooh, that's um, so cool! Award oh, shows not... are awesome. They're so crazy and different. And
0: it's so weird. But, yeah. I was not a nominee. I didn't produce. <laughs> music. Took the train to New York by myself. Went to the Grammys. Couldn't believe it. It was wild. Uh, and I came back to Philly that night with an experience.
1: That's, I'm telling you, it's that quick turnaround it gets you.
0: <laughs> it's a so quick turnaround. Cool. Like you just yeah. can't believe it's happening. And I. What was it like being on that Oscar stage?
1: I like still, I have an image in my head of it. I was trying to, so we weren't supposed to go on stage. Like, honestly, we probably got in trouble for doing that. Like you're not supposed (laughs) to run up, but we did. And, you know, uh, I just remember like running up and like kind of trying to, to hide behind, um... Like behind Melissa, my English teacher, and like behind them in the front because I didn't really want to be like showing myself super publicly. You know, I just I didn't I didn't want to like take away from the moment. And um, I just remember like now looking at the videos, I'm so I'm so in the front. (laughs) You can totally see me, which is just like hilarious. Um, But oh my god, it was just incredible. Like making eye contact, for example, like with some of these people.
0: And they're staring all at you. Right,
1: they're looking at you. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing. Like I will never forget just like looking out of the crowd and like seeing all of these celebrities.
0: <laughs> what are some misconceptions that you think men have or people out there have about periods that just aren't true?
1: That's a really good question. I think um, one major thing that I kind of hadn't thought a lot about until quite recently that I don't think most people think about is the fact that having a period isn't like intrinsic to womanhood. Right. So, you know, I think there's this, this common misperception that, you know, if you're like, if, if you're thinking of a woman, you know, any woman, she menstruates, she gets a period, you know, and if you're, you're a man that you don't. And obviously in being inclusive and considering the, you know, trying to like defy the gender binary and like be inclusive in that way, um, you have to realize that like not all people who identify as women get get a period or not all um, people who get periods identify as women. And also some people who, you know, do identify as women and get, and, and, you know, would biologically maybe be supposed to be getting a period might have a condition that makes it so they don't like, Mm -hmm. I think it's just, uh, uh, this idea that a period, like, like I said, isn't intrinsic to womanhood. And I think, you know, when you're taught basic biology in like your, you know, reproductive health class or sex ed class, that's not really something that's discussed. And I hope it's something that's discussed more in the, the coming, you know, years as yeah. like society gets more percussive. Um, and then I think another thing is also this misconception that, um, the blood that like comes out of, you know, you, when you get, have your period is dirty and that it makes you like, you know, it's like, a, it's this gross, yeah. um, this gross thing. And, I think that changing the narrative and just like normalizing it as something that just happens that is like very much biologically normal um is a great way to like destigmatize periods and and you know debunk a a, a huge myth I think that like periods are gross when it's like they're normal they're the reason why why women can bear children like There's a very, there's a very specific and (laughs) biological and like normal reason why they happen. So that's, that's, that's another, another like myth that I think should be debunked. There's, there's no one size fits all experience. And so there's no like one size fits all solution. I hate to say solution because it's not really a problem, but there's no um, one size fits all like approach to managing it. Yeah. Um, that's why like, we're fortunate that there are so many products out there. Right. Or that, you know, doctors are like starting to take reproductive health more seriously. You know, if somebody has like a, you know, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome or or um, endometriosis, you know, things like that, that that can make it so that your period is like completely debilitating. Um, there's this debate going on. Uh, within like the, the period or like, you know, activist space about whether or not we should be advocating for like period leave um, during like, you know, when, when, when you're working sort of in the same way as a sick leave because think about it, if you're someone who gets debilitating periods, going to work could be such a, you know, so, so challenging on those days, but yeah. at the same time, it could be argued that like by doing that, it makes companies more like or less sorry, less inclined to, to hire women right. because they might yeah. go on sick leave. So or period leave. That's just like a an example of one of those debates like surrounding mm-hmm. periods and kind of like trying to address the the nuances and, and different experiences. But it's crazy how many doors you open up and how many conversations you you open yourself up to when you start discussing the intricacies of of periods and, like, the implications on on health and society and, and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Switching topics just a little bit, but not too far off, yesterday a court ruling in Poland banned abortion nearly altogether. Here in America, Amy Coney Barrett was recently confirmed to the United States Supreme Court, making it a heavily conservative court. People are scared that Roe v. Wade will be overturned, while I was doing research, I came over a clip of Senator Amy Klobuchar questioning Amy Coney Barrett during her confirmation hearing. Take a listen. So Brown v. Board of Education,
2: as we know, that holds that the Fourteenth Amendment prohibits states from segregating schools on the basis of race. So uh, is that
3: precedent? Um, that, yes. That
2: can't be overruled.
3: Well. That is precedent, um, mm-hmm. and as I think I said in that same article, it's super precedent. People consider it to be on that very small list of things that are so widely established and agreed upon by everyone. Mm-hmm. Calls for its overruling simply don't exist.
2: Okay, well you also separately acknowledge that in uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the Supreme Court's controlling opinion talked about in the reliance interest on Roe v. Wade which it treated in that case as super-precedent. Is Roe a super-precedent?
3: How would you define super-precedent?
2: I I, I actually, I might have thought someday I'd be sitting in that chair, I'm not, I'm up here, so I'm asking you. Okay, well
3: people use super-precedent differently. Okay. The way that it's used in the scholarship and the way that I was using it in the article that you're reading from was to define cases that are so well settled that no political actors and no people seriously push for their overruling and I'm answering a lot of questions about Roe, which I think indicates that Roe doesn't fall in that category and scholars across the spectrum say that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled, but descriptively it does mean that it's a case, not a case that everyone has accepted and doesn't call for its overruling. I don't Okay, think so I'd
2: here's what here's what's interesting to me. You said that Brown is, and I know my time is running out, is a super precedent, that's something. Uh, The Supreme Court has not even said, but you have said that. So if you say that, why won't you say that about Roe v. Wade, a case that the court's controlling opinion in that Planned Parenthood v. Casey case has described as a super precedent? That's what I'm trying to figure out.
3: Um, Well, Senator, I can just give you the same answer that I just did. I'm using a term in that article that is from the scholarly literature. It's actually one that was developed by scholars who are you know, certainly not conservative scholars who take a more progressive approach to the Constitution. And again, you know, as, as Richard Fallon from Harvard said, Roe is not a super precedent because calls for its overruling have never ceased, but that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. It just means that it doesn't fall on the small handful of cases like Marbury versus Madison and Brown versus the Board that no one questions anymore.
2: Is United States for Virginia military, is that super precedent?
3: Senator Klobuchar, if you continue to ask questions about super precedents that aren't on the list of the super precedents that I discussed in the article that are well acknowledged in the constitutional law literature, every time you ask the question, I will have to say that I can't grade it.
2: Okay. Well, I am then left with looking at the tracks of your record and where it leads the American people. And I think it leads us to a place that's going to have severe repercussions for them. Thank you.
0: Senator Says. So that was that. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts?
1: I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about about her confirmation. I think, for starters, um, you know, with regards to specifically just discussion of abortion and discussion of Roe v. Wade, I I firmly believe that it's not the it's not the position, it's not the authority, like it's not the place of you know, so a series of judges in the Supreme Court to determine what I can do with my body. And I think that her position is, is really dangerous because it, I mean, I've, I don't know if you've seen this content around like social media and in the news, but it's saying, you know, she's walking through all of these doors that Ruth Bader Ginsburg opened for her and then she's promptly closing them behind her. Yep. And I think it's, you know, this idea that she's had all of these privileges afforded to her um, as a woman, you know, which should be rights, but, but, but I guess within the context of society or privileges. And then she's trying to take them away from other women around her. And I think that it's just so problematic because who, who's to say like what I can and can't? Do when it comes to some like a circumstance with my own body, especially the fact that you know, um, I think like in the case of Poland, which is another like really polarizing example. Um, it's not that like you know banning abortion is going to stop abortions from happening. No, it's going to ha- no. you know stop them from happening like safely and in a way that's like no. medically facilitated and. I just, I'm really disappointed that she was confirmed, especially within the context of it. I mean, I know that that's a whole nother conversation about like the context under which it happened, but but I think it's hypocritical. And I think it's not representative of what the American people want. It's one thing if it is, um, then I guess that that's more about like changing public opinion. But if it's not even indicative of what like the people want, then I think that, that that's super problematic but i mean with regards to abortion i just i think it <laughs> i think i think it's it's really disappointing her, her her perspective
0: this administration has done so much to harm women's health
1: i mean yeah and, and what i just keep on thinking back to is and i, I mean this could be a polarizing opinion but i i, I firmly stand by it is if you know if they care so much about being pro-life and they care so much about ensuring that fetuses you know grow into babies and are born why don't they care about the people that are already living Mm -hmm. in america you know why are there people in cages at the border Um, why are they taking away people's health care? Like, to me, it's part of that larger question where like, what's the motive? Clearly the motive of something like overturning Roe v. Wade isn't to, you know, protect life. It's to have a stronghold on the reproductive capacities and like the liberties and the rights of women to have a say In what happens to them, and I think that that's what this speaks to on a larger sense that is really problematic.
0: Yeah, Um, she is. The I saw an article. They talk. She's the most unqualified Supreme Court justice in the past thirty years. I heard Um, about that too. So, for one, so documentation-wise for her confirmation hearing. She submitted 1,800 documents. Chief Justice John Roberts presented 75,000 pages. Elena Kagan, 170,000. Neil Gorsuch, 180,000. Brett Kavanaugh brought up over a million pages worth of documentation to show that he was qualified. Donald Trump appointed her for the sole reason that he promised to overturn, Roe v wade and he he appointed her to the Seventh Circuit court only in two thousand and seventeen so she 's only been a judge since two thousand seventeen before then that's
1: her, that's just ridiculous
0: ridiculous her 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 case like she's never i don 't think she's ever tried a case or something like that
1: it's i think it's just such a form of like political manipulation it's such a ploy it's it's one thing if she had like a long-standing record of voting you know conservatively and and voting um you know against like abortion and, and things like that but she just i think the fact that she's unqualified really just like makes you wonder to what extent the administration is trying to like undermine the systems that have been mm-hmm. in place for so long, and then on the other hand, try to maintain or you know um, reinforce other aspects of like you know the constitution and of right. like American politics that have been in in you know instated for so long. For it's so kind long. of like where where is like the I hate to say precedent, but like, where's, you know, where's the objectivity? Like, where's the following, you know, the law? And I think I keep saying that in past elections, you know, you have, you you know, you, you can have two candidates who will bad mouth the other one as much as they want, who will be sneaky and try and, you know, release stories about them and and do whatever they can to to bring down their opponent, but I don't think we've ever, or at least not in my lifetime, have ever had a, an election in which a candidate is, like, actively trying to undermine the system that would elect them, and I think that yeah. that's what's so scary. That's why, in the case of, of um, confirming Amy Coney Barrett, you know, whatever, four years ago, when, <clears throat> you know, the Republicans were saying, Do absolutely, Obama cannot yeah. confirm a yeah. new Supreme Court justice. And then they're doing it, you know, in an even more limited and like, you know, specific way. It, to me, it's just like, it makes me scared. It ma- makes me scared as a young woman who is, you know, entering adulthood and, and feels like I might not have rights. Like I might not have safety. I might not be able to like have sex without, having anxiety that, that I won't be able to do anything with my body, um, or have control over it. And I know that that's like kind of crass to say, but it's, but, but it's true. Like it says a lot about what we, this, you know, younger generation are going to be able to do and like have the right to do in come, you know, the coming, coming months, years, decades, like she's young too. I'm rambling, but Amy Koenigert's really young. Yeah. It just, it, it speaks to, I think this like larger just devaluation of, of our, of our rights and like our freedoms. And I think it's, it's, it's just, it's just scary because I, I'm, I'm really privileged and very fortunate, you know, that I've never had to be like extraordinarily concerned with, with, you know, certain rights of mine, like being taken away. You know, I mean, to an extent here and there, like, of course, but, but all I can think about is I'm going to have to change my behavior. I'm going to have to actively take steps now to defend and protect myself because like the government and and the country that I'm living in won't do that for me. And I think that that's the case for a lot of people. Um, and, it, and And it's, and it's scary. And I think it's unfair and... Gives me a lot of anxiety. I'm feeling really anxious right now, and I'm sure a lot of people are. Um, I'm from Los Angeles, and LA in itself is a, is a pretty progressive place compared to, you know, compared to the rest of the country. And I feel like I was in my own little like, liberal bubble um, in, in high school and kind of growing up. And so even leaving that and, and coming to Penn and, and moving to Pennsylvania was a huge step and, and Penn is still like a, a pretty progressive place, but voting in a state that has such weight in this election is a huge deal. Like being introduced to the fact that like, there are some pretty, some people with some pretty scary views out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it sounds silly. Like I said, I, I come from, I think in that way, like a place of privilege where like, I, I, I was in a, a, a blue bubble my whole life. Um, but I'm seeing it now from this other side and I'm, I'm realizing just how true, um, how truly polarized like the country is. And I know I brought up Pennsylvania, but like how important it is to be voting here. And, and yep. I, I waited two and a half hours in line to vote here because I just knew like it was so crucial. Mm-hmm but I think that a lot of people are having a lot of anxiety and a lot at stake. Um, and so it's making it like a very volatile time
0: yeah. to be,
1: to be a person, especially a young person.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's always really interesting to me, um, you know, coming to the senses. I think that, wow. Like I, I, I'm from, I'm from Philly and it's very much so democratic um, once you leave out of these like bubbles, like it's a very different world yeah. and it's scary. It's honestly, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, like what the other world looks like. And I think for myself, this summer I actually went across the country and I drove and I was That's in, so fun. it was a lot of fun. I would never do it again, but
1: <laughs> <Really>?
0: <laughs> it was a lot of driving I thought back to it. Like, how fortunate I am to like live in Philly and you know, all I could think a lot that I could just think about was like the poor people who are minorities, who don't fit the description of the same people that live around them. They may live in a very small town, but this is what they have to see all the time. This is what they have to endure. Like people who are praising, a guy who is racist. You know me
1: wonder like how we how we got here.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> You're like how how yeah. did how did how did we get to this point? Um I I know, I I, I totally agree. And I, I honestly think like a podcast like this or or other platforms that can reach audiences where they you know people aren't necessarily surrounded in their immediate community by people who, who advocate for them and um, and their rights. So I think that like platforms like this are amazing, but it just, it really makes you think like, how do, how do these people like develop this way of thinking and how is it reinforced? And it's, and it's, and it's scary.
0: Do you know of any places that, where people can volunteer to help out um, when it comes to like the pad project or anything like that? How can people get involved?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like we've been saying, I think that people want to be able to do something. People want to be able to like leverage their abilities and their resources to to make change and stand up against like some of the really problematic things that are happening. So, for one, um, I think the PAD project is a really great kind of unifying central um, place to like devote resources because we work in so many communities and we have our, you know, our, our, our partnerships in so many of these different places where it's like very much we are meeting the needs of the communities we're working in. Um, so in that, in that instance, you know, If, if people are interested in like donating, I think that that's like a fantastic thing to do is donate to the pad project and allow us to, to meet the needs of our, of our partners internationally. But then locally speaking, you know, a lot of people want to be able to be active in their own community in like a tangible way. And one great, great, you know, way to do that is to hold, I always say to like hold a a period product drive, you know, menstrual hygiene product drive where people have to donate pad, boxes of pads, tampons, um, and kind of like other other products like that, and donate them to like a local women's center, homeless shelter, community center, um, because I think a, a major misconception or, or kind of thing that people don't realize is that, you know, women who are experiencing homeless uh, homelessness, you know, um, women who are in prisons, um, women who are living under the poverty line—you know—they—they—they they, they experience period poverty on such an, a major scale. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you don't realize, you don't really think about, I never used to really think about the fact that um, if there are women who are experiencing homelessness in my community, they likely can't afford period products because like I said, they're expensive. And so I think doing donations like that are really, really impactful. And that's something I really encourage people to do because it's not that hard. And if you do have the resources to purchase period products and donate them to a, a shelter or community center, um, a little goes a long way. Like I said, in here and here in Philadelphia, we have a partner, Um, no more secrets. And Lynette is donating boxes and boxes of products to women and and households in West Philly, in in South Philly, in Northeast Philly, um, who people in our own community who don't have access to these products. So that's a huge thing that I would recommend, especially right now during COVID when it's, it's hard to like, you know, get your hands dirty and, and really work physically to make change. I think that that's, seems so small, but can make such a big impact is doing donations and just, just call, you know, do a little bit of Google research, find some local centers, give them a call and say, are there any like, you know, feminine hygiene or menstrual products that you're in need of? It's as simple as that. Um, and then also of course the pad project, we can help facilitate that in a lot of communities, both domestically and then internationally. So, um, I also highly recommend donating. And my last thing that it you know people can do an actual item is talk about periods openly. It seems like very very small, but you'd be surprised at how much like a single conversation can help destigmatize this very taboo subject. Like if you just openly talk about it. If I need a tampon, I'm not you know and I'm not hush hush about it. I openly ask the room of people that I'm in hey does anyone have a tampon i just got my period yeah make the person in the corner a little bit uncomfortable and then in doing that you're going to make them a little bit more comfortable the next time they hear about periods so i think that that's another big thing is is just open up the subject destigmatize it for yourself and in doing that you you automatically help destigmatize it for others
0: um what's something that you want to say to men
1: Ooh, one thing I want to say to men is I guess in, in like in a similar way, like don't assume that period poverty or period stigma is like a women's issue and that it's something that you should shy away from just because it's not something that you experience. Um I think in a way it's even more crucial that men enter the Conversation and normalize periods for themselves. You know, if you're, let's say you're, you're, you have a girlfriend and you know, you know, when she gets her period, um, normalize talking about it. Don't be weird about it. Or, you know, your mom or your sister, like, don't be weird about it. Um, if you're openly talking about it, I think that that even, like, does, does, just does, does strides for destigmatizing the topic. Um, and educate yourself a little bit because. Chances are you probably weren't properly educated about reproductive health um, when you were in like middle school. So that's my biggest thing is having having male allies in this conversation is so, so important.
0: Yeah. Well thank you so much for uh, joining me on It's been so podcast. fun. Yes. Yeah it was I love
1: it. I love this.
0: Um I'll talk to you later. Thank you all so much for joining me on this episode of Take Two. Again, I'm your host, Kamel Jones. See you next time. Bye.